Good morning. How are we all doing today? Hope we're all fit and well uh, for a Saturday morning. Um, who have we got in the house? Uh, good morning, Gary, and good morning, Ken. Great to see you here, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, just while I, I, I originally said when I, I started doing these Saturday shows that I wouldn't be featuring video, um, but I started to come up with something on the on the subject of technology, and it seemed easier to uh, actually turn it into a video. So I've got that weight in the wings. While we're waiting for a few more people to turn up, and we are in double figures already, which is a great start. Um, just to get it out of the way, um, I, that's good to know. Um, I'm not sure whether we see me clearer is necessarily a good thing, but um, it's good to see you using the tech anyway, uh, particularly for a show that is dedicated today to uh, the subject of technology. Uh, and good morning, Al, all the way from Luxembourg. Great to, to have you to join us. Uh, obviously, we've got our regulars in the in the show, so I'll get this out of the way. Um, my visit to um, see my mum yesterday was every bit as bad as I expected. Uh, unfortunately, after six weeks in intensive care, she is now being switched over to palliative care. Um, so yesterday was basically my last opportunity um, to say goodbye to my mum, uh, which was quite quite easily the worst day that I've ever had. Um, but basically telling a doctor um, that they have they have my permission to stop treating her, uh, which is not the way you really want to spend your day with your mum. But she's suffered enough, um, and that's um, that is unfortunately that is the nature of, of you know the circle of life and, and the passage of time and everything else. So I, I spoke to Gary Muirhead very quickly earlier on today. The basic plan for today is to give me something to take my mind off all of that, um, and I have just the thing. Um, so we're going to have a good old chin wag here. Um, but to, to just to set the scene, uh, I, as I say, I, I have produced a video on um, the subject of technology. It's it's based it's based mostly upon my experience of technology and how it's changed my job, which obviously is different to the jobs of others. But it does show. The, the potentially damaging effect of technology as well as it shows the advantages of, of technology as well so i'm going to switch off the music uh, just temporarily and i'm going to roll the video uh, this video is actually about eight minutes long so um, i'll be chatting away in, in, at the same time uh, in the comment section but this is just to set the tone uh, love to know what you think afterwards and i'll see you on the other side of this attended my first Las Vegas construction equipment show. I think it was about 1987, but frankly, the years haven't been kind to my memory. My job was very different to the job that I do today, even though my actual role has barely changed. The day before Conag opened its doors, I was there, film camera, reporter's notebook and biro in hand. My mission was clear, to see as much of the show as humanly possible, gather photos of anything that looked even remotely new, and then to head back to the press office to write about what I'd just seen. The two or three rolls of film that I'd shot were handed to a courier desk in the press office for immediate dispatch back to the UK. At the same time, I was sat at one of dozens of manual typewriters filing my copy. That copy was then faxed back to the offices of Contract Journal, where it would be retyped by a secretary. A day or two later, I would phone the office and attempt to marry the copy to the photos that had now been processed by the company's in-house darkroom. That copy would then be passed to a sub-editor who was charged with checking my spelling and grammar and for adding a suitably catchy headline. 
the edited copy and the photos were then passed to a layout artist, who would then turn my words into something that looked like a page or three of a magazine. That would then be replicated by an external typesetting company, who would make the whole thing ready for the printer. If all went according to plan, that issue of Contract Journal would land on readers' desks the following week, while I was still shaking off the jet lag, or explaining to the editor while I was still in Las Vegas, days after the show had closed. Now I tell you all of this not to highlight the fact that I've been doing this job for a long time, or to point out the endless inefficiencies of the old days of print journalism. I mention it to highlight how things have changed in just three decades. When I was at the Con Expo show in March 2020, my primary role was precisely the same. But this time I was able to broadcast it all live with nothing more than a smartphone. There were no typewriters, no fax machines, just an internet connection that allowed me to take my readers, viewers and subscribers around the show with me. The quality of that content was better, faster and more engaging. In the span of a single career, I'd seen my entire industry change beyond all recognition. While the ability to broadcast to a global audience using just a handheld device still boggles my mind, I'm increasingly aware of what that transition actually meant for a whole plethora of working men and women. My switch to digital content delivery means that there was no need for a courier to transport my film back to the UK. There was no need for a secretary to retype my hastily arranged words, and no need for an in-house darkroom to process the film. There was no need for a sub-editor, layout artist or typesetter, and no need for a printer either. So while I realised that none of these companies or individuals were dedicated solely to bringing my words to the industry masses, my switch from paper to digital and from words to video will have impacted upon the livelihood of literally dozens of individuals. For many, the typesetters and darkrooms, that impact would prove to be terminal, their roles driven into extinction by the unstoppable march of progress and technology. So, aside from the fact that I was reporting on demolition and construction equipment, what has all of that got to do with the demolition and construction industries of today? Well, by some strange quirk of fate, the answer lies precisely where this story started. In Las Vegas. As I mentioned earlier, I was back in Vegas for the Con Expo show in March 2020. Despite creeping fears over Covid-19 that would eventually close the show a day early, the exhibition was a huge success, and I was struck by the sheer volume of technology on display. Oh sure, there was still heaps of heavy iron to keep us anoraks and enthusiasts interested, but virtually every major manufacturer worth its salt was backing that equipment with technology of some description. There were telemetry systems by the cartload, GPS and machine guidance systems, drone surveys, ground penetrating radar, remote controls and autonomous equipment as far as the eye could see. And while all those developments cover a multitude of use cases and applications, they all point in one direction. Work sites upon which men and women become increasingly rare, and work sites upon which some roles might simply cease to exist. Like the removal of the typesetter role in the print industry of old, why would we still need individuals to mark out construction sites when this can be done digitally? Why employ someone to check and monitor accuracy when machines are generating accuracy reports in real time? Many equipment operators fear this might just be the thin end of the wedge. On the latest generation of Caterpillar dozers, for example, operators are required only to choose the machine's ground speed. Everything else can be controlled by the machine's electronic brain. 
Alternatively, those machines can be controlled remotely from dedicated control stations. And it's just a short leap from remote to autonomous control. Indeed, Caterpillar trucks have already hauled more than 3 billion tonnes of material in total autonomy without a single accident or incident. Not only does such technology threaten future employment for demolition and construction workers right across the industry spectrum, it could also impact upon the industry's ability to attract young people into roles that could so easily be obsolete long before they reach retirement age. Yet, as we've seen in the automotive sector, the transition from man to machine is far from straightforward. There is a landmark case going through the US courts literally as we speak that is seeking to decide who was to blame when a Tesla car on autopilot crashed into an oncoming car and killed two people. And while the isolated nature of demolition and construction work might negate most concerns over pedestrian safety, such incidents will surely be cited by those opposing technological transition. According to some reports, the continued adoption of automation threatens the livelihoods of around 700 million people worldwide and across all industry sectors. And if you think I'm overstating the possible impact of automation, think back to your last visit to the supermarket. Was it a living, breathing human that scanned your items? Or was it a faceless machine? And where does all that leave humanity? Obviously, there will be concerns over how the technologically displaced might earn a living in the age of technology. But our concerns should run far deeper than that. And to understand why, listen to this from the great philosopher Frankie Goes to Hollywood. In the common age of automation, where people eventually might work only 10 or 20 hours a week, man for the first time would be forced to confront himself with the true spiritual problems of living. Remarkably profound from a band famous or infamous for the song Relax, but there is more than a shred of truth in those lyrics. I don't necessarily subscribe to the words inscribed above the gates of the Auschwitz concentration camp, work sets you free. But work has, for centuries, provided both a source of income and, importantly, some structure to our everyday lives. While the thought of breaking the shackles of employment sounds appealing, what would our lives actually look like without the structure of work? We have already taken our first steps on the road to a technology-driven and automated future. It is almost certainly too late to turn back now. But it's a road that is potentially lined with twists, turns, hazards and pitfalls. And we should all proceed with extreme caution. So there you are. That was uh, that was my take on uh, technology, friend or foe. Um, our friend Gary Muirhead has, has been on already. <clears throat> I do believe we really need technology progress in this life, uh, make work easier, quicker and more cost affordable. Otherwise, we'll be stuck in the past using picks and shovels. 100 percent. Um, I, I will state my case. Um, I, I am a, an advocate for all things technological. Um, I, I use it all the time. The very fact that I'm talking to you over the interwebs as we speak proves the fact that you know I'm, I'm very keen to embrace uh, technology. 
but I was only half joking with that um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood reference. You know, we, I, I've always insisted that I wouldn't personally be defined by my job. Um, the fact that I'm a, a husband and a father and a grandfather and, and a son um, is far more telling about my personality than the fact that I talk about diggers a bit. Um, but, but work, for most of us, does actually provide the structure of our lives. Um, and if you took that away... You know, I, I've often thought that, you know, if, if I were to, you know, if I won the lottery, which would be difficult because I don't actually do it. Uh, if I were to win the pools, that would also be difficult because I don't do those either. Um, if I were to win a million, two million, ten million pounds, what would I do? Um, and in absolute truth, I don't think I'd do a great deal different um, because I do this as much out of passion as I do out of um, desire for cash. Um I'd probably just do it with a, a better, more advanced camera and a better, more powerful computer. Um, work, unquestionably, I think, does put structure in our lives. Um, and and uh, you know, if you can, if you can look forward far enough to the time when you know parts of the industry will be autonomous or remotely controlled, and and, and the remote control is is kind of the key to to the autonomy thing. I've, I've obviously seen simulators, um, and the original batch of simulators were a simulator of a machine. So you would be on a simulator, and you would have a machine. In, in my instance, it was the first one I, I got to use hands-on was a high-ridge excavator. So you, you were basically in the cab of a high-ridge excavator, and that was all it did. But when you look at some of the, the, the simulators now, and those simulators are obviously use the, very much the same um, technology that we use for remote control, it, it is very, very straightforward now to control several machines. So you might, you might as a, a, as a remote operator, pull up a dump truck, switch over to the excavator mode, and the excavator loads, remotely loads that machine. You switch back to the, to the uh, dump truck, and you drive it off. You dump the load. You come back. And, and I, if you've got four or five of those, as we demonstrated in the, uh, in the Caterpillar video there, if you've got four, of those, four or five of those side by side, you could run multiple machines and multiple sites. Um, so rather than having one man per machine, you might have one man or one woman um, over two, three, four machines, um, depending on obviously you know, whether they're supposed to be working simultaneously. And if they do need to be working simultaneously, particularly, I, I think this was uh, something that Al mentioned on the show possibly yesterday. Um, if you're talking about something like, uh, for example, uh, a mine application or a quarry application, where all you're doing is going around in circles or back and forth, you know, just re repetitive work, that could very much be automated and made entirely autonomous uh, if we choose to go down that route. Um, and, and I know every time that, that I post anything about uh, remote controls, or autonomy, particularly on Instagram, where people do tend to get very up in arms very, very quickly. Um, we, we do get immediate feedback on the fact that that will cost um, working men and working women uh, women their jobs. Uh, and I do understand that fear. You know, having seen it firsthand in, in my little portion of, of my little pocket of the industry, I certainly understand that fear because it's not 
I'm I know that it's not beyond us to do that. Um, when you look, I, I mentioned supermarkets um, because I I've got a, a local um, co-op um, just just around the corner, um, and the irony with that is that the I, they, they've got a single scanner. It's a very small shop. They've got a sim, single scanner, so you can do self-service. But it often goes wrong. Uh, it doesn't recognise you. It, it takes umbrage to something you're trying to buy. If you're buying an energy drink, frankly, I do that a lot. Um, if you're buying an energy drink, it needs to be age verified, which then means that a, a human has to come along and press a button that allows you to actually um, buy whatever it is that you buy. Speaking to the guy, the, the cashier at the desk, when they installed that machine, his hours were reduced and yet he is basically acting back up to a machine. Um, could we see the same in construction? Could we have a, a situation where we have autonomous machines with you know one or two men or women in a, a remote office or an office on site, but not actually at the work face? And if something goes pear-shaped, they have to jump in a car and get themselves out to site and, and make it go right or whatever it might be. So yeah, all interesting stuff. Uh, let's have a look. Um, now I've done that one from Gary. Um, yeah, I, th th you know, Ken, this, it is. This is quite a difficult subject because, as I say, I I love it. I love tech. Um, I, I, and I'll take you back to my job. There's there's a couple of comments there from Al as well. I'll come back to those in a second. You know, going back to to my job, you know, I, we used to boast when I was at Contract Journal about the fact that we could reach forty four thousand people um, a week. And to do so required a team of about 40 people, maybe a little bit more, maybe more like 45 once you've taken in the advertising people and everything else. I could reach a, a, an audience, and I do mean a global audience, of more than half a million pressing a button. That's all I have to do. Um, the audience here tends to be quite focused, but you know, I can go live. We've got 140,000 odd followers over on, on Instagram, and I just press a button start talking and i've got people quite literally from around the world watching um and, and and as a result of that i don't need the advertising staff i don't need fellow reporters i don't need an editor i don't need sub editors or layout artists or typesetters or printers all of those jobs at least as far as i'm concerned no longer exist um and certainly when you look at some of the, uh, and, and I have to say, it's fantastic technology, but, you know, some of the stuff that we're, we're seeing from the likes of uh, Leica and Trimble, you know, their ability to um, use drones to scan uh, a, a site very, very accurately, I mean, to, to incredibly ac accuracy, to then take that data and to program machines. So effectively, as I said with the dozers, you literally, you know, the operator, as, as it stands at the moment, gets in, sets the, the speed, and then sits there and monitors that doesn't actually need to be the case you know if if, if a major contractor you know, particularly on a project like hs2 you know if if um Belfer bt or kia or somebody like that said actually we're going to make this part of the project completely autonomous i think that would be the uh, the, the start of the revolution um al uh tech that makes life easier hydraulic quick couplers aircon uh, machine assisted grading it's great tech that renders swathes of the population useless is worrying especially since there is no change in society to accommodate this 
And therein lies one of the issues, I think. Um, I'm just going to throw this up from uh, from our friend Neil. Morning, Neil. Good to see you here. Several ports operate autonomously. Autonomous cranes loading autonomous trucks to move the containers around the port. Absolutely. And again, that goes back to Al's point about it being like a, a circular thing. If you're going back and forth and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Um, and Ken Hatter is saying, wait, wait for the metaverse. Um, you can, when you can sit in my living room. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. Oh, just, just on the point, um, if you look at the very top of um, the chat today, um, I have actually. Uh, can I? No, can I? I have. I've, I've put a, a comment there. If anyone wants to leap on the show, if you've got a webcam and a microphone uh, or a smart device. Um, and you fancy joining us on the show as a guest, please feel free. The, the link is there. Um, I, th I think, and I, I, I do, as, as regular viewers know, I do tend to go off at tangents, but that point about the fact that there's been no change in society, think about how air travel used to work. And this is nothing, nothing really to do with technology, but think about this, right? So... Air travel used to require you to be at the airport about an hour early to go through check-in and passport control and, and all that kind of thing. Well, that, because airports then became busier because, you know, low-cost air travel um, opened it up to a wider audience. So one hour became two hours. And then obviously we had 9-11, so there were increased security risks, uh, security fear, should I say. So two hours then became three hours. But then if you look at the nature of the airports themselves, they haven't changed. You know, you used to go, when you had an hour to spare, you could go to the airport, you know, pop, pop into WH Smith to give, grab yourself a magazine, possibly grab yourself a burger, and then jump on the plane and head off. Now, you go to the airport, you check in, you, you handed your bags over, you've gone through passport control, and you are now facing two and a half hours with the same burger bars and the same WH Smiths, and there's only so many magazines you can read. And in the in the age of the Kindle, I would imagine a lot. Certainly, I, I take a, a Kindle or an iPad with me, and I'm watching movies or um, what reading books or whatever it might be on the go. The airports haven't changed to suit our our changed lifestyles and, and the way that we travel. And, and I think that's an absolutely valid point that Al has made there. Um, this uh, this notion that yes we we could do away with um, men and women on an awful lot of work. What happens then? Um, you know, do do we accept the fact that we all start to work less? Um, and and don't let's forget, you know, we've just come out of a, a global pandemic in which we have all proved most of us have proved that we can work remotely. Obviously, uh, certainly here in the UK, um, construction and demolition workers were granted key worker status that allowed them to work on site and, and everything else. But there are there are a lot of people within the industry, you know, not, not at the coalface, but in the industry that have now had a taste of what it, it's like to work from home. I don't have to look at, at you know, my, I, I've been working at home for more than 20 years. Um, the nature of that job has changed, so I've gone from typing to talking. Um, but my, my daughter, my youngest daughter, who still lives at home, uh, works for a coffee company. Um, she was in an office, um, you know, answering telephones and, and updating computer systems. The day that she was put onto furlough, she came home and she has basically worked at home ever since, to the point where the company involved are now talking about closing that office. Um, and what does that mean for the, the wider world? 
as an example, and, and this is purely based on, on my daughter, um, my daughter's office, as was, used to, still is, but it, it, it could well go. That office was based on an industrial estate that had its own um, you know, burger bars and, and, and that kind of thing, and um, cafes and, and, and what have you, because there were staff working there. If you take those away, what happens to those people? So you, my, my daughter being able to do her job remotely, even though she's vegetarian and didn't visit the burger bar, um, you know, there's one less potential customer there. So you see those going away. You, you've only got to look at um, the way that uh, my, my beloved West Ham, you know, they moved down the road. Now, they didn't start working from home, although there's a few of them that often play like they are. Um, but they, we, we moved our stadium a couple of miles down the road. And all of those people that had set up businesses selling food and drinks and t-shirts and hats and scarves and memorabilia and all that kind of thing that around the old ground disappeared disappeared because the, the, there was no space for them um, at the new ground um, you know modern commerce insists that um, West Ham very much owns its own brand and the players uh, own their own brand and everything else so those people that used to sell you Slightly questionable quality T-shirts and slightly questionable quality uh, scarves and very questionable quality burgers on the approach to um, the ground have now gone. They don't actually exist anymore. Um, so let me just catch up with um, some of this. As soon as the latency of remote control machines has been reduced to a minimum, uh, machine operations will be outsourced to a windowless warehouse in some poverty-stricken third-world country. Uh, and and I have to say, not only do I agree wholeheartedly with that, I, I'm not entirely sure we need to wait for that latency thing. Uh, I have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Um, I accompanied my friend Peter Haddock to um, a meeting, a, a pre-HS2 meeting up in Birmingham, the one in the UK, not the one in America, um, and the Caterpillar dealer was there and they had a simulator there um, and the simulator was linked to a D10 dozer, Cat D10 dozer, that was stationed over in Arizona. And I, I had a bit of a spin, you know, as, as you do, um, and I actually said, you know, what is the latency? And the guy said, um, I'll prove it. Turn the lights on. And I pressed the switch that turned on the headlights. There you are. I may as well have been sat in the cab. The, the lights came on instantaneously. You know, that latency is now down to such a tiny, tiny level. And, you know, with, with the advent of, of 5G, and obviously there'll be more of that to come high-speed connections and that kind of thing, um, that's only going to get better. Um, and it will, as you rightly say, I mean, what, what, one of the things that we've touched on before is there is a company up in, I think they're Danish or Norwegian, um, I think they were called Steam or Stream or something like that, can't remember. But one of the things that they were proposing technology-wise was this ability to work around the clock while keeping people's hours the same. So Im imagine a, a working site where, uh, let's say a working site here in the UK. So let's say Birmingham. There's a site operating in Birmingham and the UK shift, be it on-site or off-site, as, as Alice has alluded to there, does their eight-hour shift. At the end of the eight-hour shift, they clock off and an American crew working remotely take over the operation of that site and those machines. And and I'm never I've never bothered to check the uh, time difference, but let's say they work eight hours, and then the Japanese crew 
come on stream for another eight hours. So when our British crew returns to work either to the site or to their um, their windowless warehouses, as Alice put it there, they will find that a further two shifts have taken place and that machine has been kept going. The work has continued. So effectively, you could conceivably do work in a third of the time. Um, now, obviously, you know, there will be dispensations granted to some projects, particularly when you're, you're away from prying eyes. So mines and quarries, it's not unusual for mines and quarries to work around the clock. But think about HS2, those bits of HS2 that are cutting through the countryside. As it stands at the moment, we, we don't want to be working 24 hours because, you know, tiredness and fatigue and everything else. But if you did your eight hours and then handed over to an overseas crew to take it up where you left off, well, with it, well within our means. Um, wonder if our brains are all are ready for this new tech. I, you know, it's it's funny you should say that. As I say, I mean, I, I am a, a, an absolute advocate. I mean, if you could see, I, one of these days I will actually put a camera behind me so you can see what I'm working with. So I've got that way. I've got lighting there. I've got fancy camera. I've got the stream deck here. Apple Mac computer, iPad, uh, iPhone, Apple Watch. I, I am. I am drowning in tech here, but I have now reached the age where I have started to filter. Um, but there are certain, you know, it might be a new app, and I take one look at it and think, Do you know, I genuinely can't be bothered to learn that. Um, I, when I started to do these shows, I did so using a, a system called StreamYard. Um, that's almost exactly two years ago that I started doing that. Um, and I, I did it. First of all, it was one that I. It was a system I'd used before as a guest, and I'd found it very, very easy to use. Um, the the base level um, platform it was free, which was an advantage, and it had everything that I needed. So you know, I could bring in video and and graphics and that kind of thing. Having now done live streaming full time for two years, I know there are better systems out there. You know, there's there's a thing called OBS or um, Streamlabs and, and all of those kind of things. But I have made a, a conscious decision to not go after one of those, purely because a I don't I can't be asked to learn a new system, and b I don't think there's enough of an advantage for me to learn a new system chances are you know aside from slight changes in in graphics you would never even notice the difference i you know, I, I would i would stop doing Streamyard one day do obs the next and you wouldn't even spot it um so i have started to filter and, and that and I, I do think you know i'm i'm knocking on the door of 57 now and i i, I know age is is one of those challenges um, and, and I think ultimately you, you kind of have to go with what you can understand. But we do have, um, as I, I've been telling my uh, nephew recently, you know, he's, he's taking his options at the moment. And if you think back a few years, you know, we used to tell our children to limit their screen time. Oh, don't spend too much time on that computer. Don't, don't, don't be spending your time playing uh, World of Warcraft or, or anything like that. And now look. Now look at it. You know, we, we are in an age where we are genuinely spend as much time on a computer as you possibly can. Learn how it works. Learn how to code if necessary. Learn how live streaming works. Learn how video works. Because there is a genuine and a lucrative career to be had in that. Um, and if if you are if I if I were 
in charge of recruitment at a construction company now, or if I were a young person coming out of school or college and I had a good grounding in computers and technology. Going back to what I was just saying about this ability to work remotely, there is nothing to stop you as a, as a, a British school leaver or college leaver or university leaver being sat here, quite possibly still in your parents' home, and driving a dozer that's actually in America. Nothing whatsoever to stop you doing that. Um, it's early days, but I, I, I genuinely believe that's the way we're headed. Um, we've already covered that one. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, um, Neil, uh, David Wiley. Good morning, David. Good to see you here. Uh, you can drive to Birmingham faster. You can fly to Glasgow. Uh, and that was pre-pandemic. Absolutely. Going back to that, that point about being stuck in an airport where there's absolutely nothing to do. You think about that. Um, I, I would imagine the Americans are really feeling that because I, I, I spent I spent some time, um, well, I've spent quite a bit of time in America. I was actually offered a job in America um, decades ago. Um, and it was going to be based in California, which, do I regret it? Only every day. Um, but the, the way that, that my job was basically going to work was that I'd be based in California and I would be going to other parts of the States. And I do remember as the naive Englishman asking the question about, you know, travel and everything else. And, and you know, the internal flight system pre-9-11, it was like a bus. You'd just turn up at the airport, you'd show them a ticket or you'd buy a ticket there on the spot, you'd jump on the next plane that was available and you'd go on your merry way. Um, obviously, 9-11 will have, will have impacted that greatly. But, you know, when, when you can drive to Birmingham faster than you can fly to Glasgow, in fact, fast, probably faster than you can fly to uh, Birmingham as well. Um, and, and you take in the cost of all of that. And, and again, going back to this, this idea that we have, um, which is one of the, the drivers behind a, a project like HS2, this idea of the northern powerhouse and taking... Uh, employment and prosperity to different parts of the country we are still focused upon taking the actual physical jobs and the actual physical demand to those parts of the country when in many instances we wouldn't necessarily need to why why do we need people from manchester coming down to do london jobs or london people going to manchester to do manchester jobs when london people can to do can do many many manchester jobs sat here in london and the manchester people vice versa um that there, there is a new paradigm that we need to to understand not not necessarily across the board with construction and, and demolition but again you know there there are opportunities for that um Morning, Mick. Uh, good to see you here. Uh, tech is okay, but what happens when AI becomes totally self self learning? Uh, somebody has watched far, far too many uh, episodes of uh, Terminator over the years. We've all seen what's possible with technology. Handle say when a unplanned collapse happens, and stop mentioning West Ham. I'm trying to eat my breakfast. <clears throat> I, I need to address this, and I need to address it in a very serious tone, Mick. Um, Mick. Bless him, and and my my my, my lifelong pity upon him uh, is a Millwall supporter. Um, for those that don't know, Millwall and uh, West Ham have a very very <laughs> very unfriendly rivalry. Um, that there have been it football wise. The Millwall-West Ham rivalry is about as close to civil war as you can possibly get. Um, 
But I mentioned this week about the uh, the, the little girl at um, West Ham who sadly passed away from uh, from a terminal illness, and I I have seen signs up outside the Millwall ground. Um, I've seen Millwall fans wearing uh, West Ham shirts in support of little Isla Caton. Um, and, and while I, I realise that that is likely to put a lot of Millwall fans off their breakfast, Mick included, I have to say, you know, there, there are times when you do get the... the uh, you, you are reminded that um, there is a bit more to life than football rivalries. I've said that. I mean it. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. But I still don't particularly like Millwall, <laughs> and I'm sure Mick feels exactly the same about West Ham. Um, <clears throat> funnily, I'll, I'll throw that back up because, uh, funny enough, Mick makes a, a very interesting point there. He mentions uh, an unplanned collapse. So there you are. Let's uh, let's let's talk about unplanned collapse. So. Um, Six years ago, almost to the day, or it will be on the 23rd of February, um, we had the boiler house collapse at Didcot Power Station. We had part of the, the uh, boiler house collapse. So about half, three quarters of it fell down. Uh, four men sadly um, sadly lost their lives. Uh, the investigation is ongoing. Uh, it took seven months to recover the bodies of those four men, or three of those four men. Um, partly... My belief is because the health and safety executive from the very outset were determined determined to secure a successful prosecution of somebody that was involved, but also because there were fears about the stability of the remaining portion of that boiler house. And how was that boiler house eventually brought down? It was brought, brought down by a company called Orford Technology, who placed explosive charges remotely so using literally robots and the the entire thing was brought down remotely so your your point about unplanned collapse is 100% correct but it cuts both ways and, I, and I'll give you another example um, I I would need to check uh, I'm going to take a wild stab I it must be 10 years ago there was a, a, a massive earthquake um, let me just check make sure I've got my um, dates right it was 2011 so 11 years ago there was a, a massive earthquake in New Zealand uh, caused huge huge destruction in Christchurch many people lost their lives um, and and it it destabilized and, and left a lot of buildings um, very very badly damaged and unsafe um, and once again a lot of them were brought down using explosive means. A lot of them brought down by high-ridge excavators. But an awful lot of them, and there was one particular example that I do remember, there was a cathedral in um, in Christchurch where they flew drones through the window to have a look around to get an idea of what it was they had to deal with. Now, ultimately, that, that, that project was carried out by men and machines. But the men and machines were allowed to do their job by the advent of technology, by somebody stood way, way away, flying a drone, having a look around, taking videos, and then analysing that video to see what the best course of action. So I'm not, I'm not for one moment suggesting that technology is suddenly going to wipe men and women off, off the uh, industry. 
but those little incremental moves, much as I, as I highlighted with my own job, you know, those little incremental moves. When I took my, my first uh, laptop computer, um, I was warned that it would threaten the livelihoods of people like typesetters. And it just seemed so such a ridiculous notion. And I was very young, very naive and very selfish, but it seemed like such a ridiculous notion that I just, oh, just give me the computer, it makes my life easier. And yet within probably three or four years of that happening, those typesetters had ceased to exist. Um, uh, 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 um, let's have a look. Uh, yes, I'm going to throw that one up. Um, as I say, Isla Caton um, really was a, a, a very, very timely reminder of... Um, yeah, I, I, I remember the... Uh, what was it? Was it Bill Shankly said? Um, uh, football isn't a matter of life or death. It's far more important than that. On match days, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. But there are times when you, you do get a, a, a very gentle reminder that actually it is just a game. It is just 22 blokes chasing a ball around a pitch and 55,000 people shouting and swearing at them <laughs> or, or swearing at each other. Um, let's have a look. Um, this is more critical to the situation in, in Luxembourg. We have a very high wage country, minimum wage, £1,800 a month. Wow. Uh, and have uh, 200,000 com commuters crossing the border from Belgium, France, Germany, since there are more jobs than people here. If remote working becomes more normalised, companies are going to hire remote staff on French, German, uh, Belgian terms, rather than on Luxembourg ones. Yeah, which, which I mean, obviously, I mean, that, that kind of reiterates your point there uh, earlier, Al, about the idea of, um, you know, third world countries and that kind of thing. If knowing commerce, as we all do, and, and you know, the, the, the constant drive for profit, that would be the next stage. I, would, I could very much see that. And, and I, with, the, with the, the video that I played earlier, we've got a situation now where we could put somebody in um, an office or a, a remote location. So let's let's say, uh, let's use HS2 as an example. So we could have a, a remote station on the HS2 site with 10, 20, 50 operators sat in there operating the HS2 machines. But why do they need to be on that site? So, okay, so you put them in another town um, and and that maybe they don't just operate the HS2. They op they operate somewhere else. And and you know I go back to what I was saying about Manchester people doing London jobs and so on. And once you've got to that point, what's to stop you then moving it overseas? So to a third world country, and with a with a very very low um, wage base. And then ultimately, you know, bearing in mind, even if you go to a third world country and you train up the people to drive your excavators and your dozers and your wheel loaders and your dump trucks, even if you can train them to do them do it very, very well, they're still human. Um, humans make errors. They also take holidays. They also take sick time. They also oversleep from time to time. Machines do not. So, you know, I, I just, I, I think we've already witnessed... And, and Mick, hell, you, you've been around this industry for, for longer than all of us. You think back 40, 50, 60 years. Demolition, for example, was a very, very hands-on. You literally had men with sledgehammers and mattocks. They were up ladders. They were climbing on roofs and that kind of thing. With the advent of, of mechanization, we've moved man further and further back to the point we now have rocks and husk iron machines that work remotely and allow people to carry out the same work, but from a safe distance. We've got high-ridge excavators that push man back as well and puts them in a safe environment. 
we've already seen that move away from the coalface. Staggered move away from the coalface. There is more moves like that to be had. Um, and, and that, as, uh, as our friend Al there has highlighted, you could very easily see that that, you know, <clears throat> the, some of the construction or demolition jobs being done in Luxembourg, being done by um, their French and German and Belgian neighbours because they are a bit cheaper. And then once you've fathomed that that actually works, what's to stop um, the French, Germans and the Belgians being replaced by those in Bali or Thailand or India or uh, remote parts of Africa? Nothing whatsoever. The technology would allow it. Um... It's like the railways we invented. We're still struggling to go 125 miles an hour. Japan has the bullet train, uh, 300 plus. I've had the, the pleasure of, of riding on the bullet train, and it blows your mind. It really does. Um, Francis TGV 200 plus. We definitely need HS2, a new tech that can bring us in line with the rest of the world. We do, we do, and and uh, and I, I wouldn't argue with that one bit. Uh, I I am a believer in HS2 on a number of for a number of reasons. Capacity is one. Um, speed of movement is another. Taking traffic off the roads is another. But with all that being said, I, I am still not entirely convinced that we've actually considered the bigger picture. In a lot of ways, putting in a railway. And I know they're very, they, they can be very efficient um, and they're, they're a, a sensible way of moving lots of people, excuse me, in a single vehicle. I understand all of that, but has anybody considered the fact that we don't necessarily need to move people for employment these days? I, I'm sat here, I'm sat here in, I'm well, just outside Epsom, so I'm on the outskirts of London. I could be doing this job from Birmingham. I could be doing this job from Devon. I could be doing it from the wilds of Scotland. I could be doing this from New York, New Orleans, New Zealand. The time difference would be a swine, but I could do this job from anywhere. I don't have to go on a train at all. I've got a train station down the end of the road. Now, obviously, COVID has, has rather queered um, travel anyway. But I don't think I've set foot on a train in 18 months, uh, possibly even two years. Um, because why would I? What, what, why do I need to go anywhere? You know, if I need to meet somebody, I can do it here. I can do it via Zoom or via StreamYard that I'm talking on now. I've got a telephone. Um, I've got email. I don't need to go to meet people. Um, the very fact that I always find that laughable when you watch um, something like Sky News, particularly when they're reporting on something like um, uh, a particularly bad storm, uh, you know, bad weather and that kind of thing. And they they will they will send a reporter to go and stand in hurricane force winds, or up to their knees in flood water, or freezing their nuts off in a blizzard. Just show us, <laughs> just just show us. I I don't need a guy stood there. There's, that adds nothing. So much the same. I, you know, I, I listen. If if Caterpillar would like to invite me back to Malaga, I'd love to go to Malaga. Always have a great time in Malaga. But I can show it to you just as easily, sat here, um, with a cup of tea sat just behind me. Um, um, <clears throat> that is a very good question. Um, Okay, so let 
not not entirely technology related, but that was always the plan with these shows: is that we would go where the conversation took us. Um, why didn't they use remote machines to get the four out? If that boiler house was going to collapse, it would have done so when the first one did. Uh, whole of it, investigation bogged down in red tape, a bit like Sue Gray's investigation. Mick, one hundred percent. I I know. I know that um, drones were sent in um, initially uh, um, to look for the uh, the three guys that were stuck in the rubble. Um, I've even heard, uh, and these are third-hand um, and, and quite possibly uh, apocryphal, but I've heard word that um, the drones actually spotted one of the guys, um, but it was considered too dangerous to actually get to them. Um, my, my take on that... Um, I think he's probably the same as yours, Mick. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the, the way that these things should work, or should have worked, was there was a collapse. It was a, it was a, a, an accident, a tragedy, call it what you like, but there was a collapse. Four men were killed. One was recovered immediately, uh, and three remained trapped in all of that uh, tangled steel for seven months. Um, seven months, and bearing in mind we're not talking about they were stuck on the moon they were stuck in a town in England um, the priority at that point should have been to recover those men and return them to their families the second priority should have been ascertaining the precise cause and then sharing that with the demolition industry to ensure that anybody working on other power stations and they were at the time but to ensure that they could learn from any lessons that had arisen from that collapse. And the third, and by far the least important part of that, would be to bring a prosecution against somebody that had been found responsible. Instead of which, we've done it completely the other way around. Um, from the afternoon that that collapse happened, the health and safety executive and Thames Valley Police threw a cordon around that site because their priority was securing a prosecution. Um, the families have been largely kept in the dark ever since, um, and not just kept in the dark, but have been... Uh, they, they have, they and anybody else involved, so witnesses and the companies involved, have been warned not to uh, speak publicly, um, lest it um, prejudice any um, court case that might happen. And we then have the ludicrous situation where Coleman and Company, the company involved, have carried out their own investigation and have publicly stated that they've found um, they found stuff that, that, you know, in their findings, there was stuff there that could prevent a repeat. Um, they, they claim that they found uh, fundamental flaws in the, the accepted methodology used to take down a power station or a boiler house. But because of this, uh, this planned prosecution, and because of um, this determination to um, secure that, that prosecution, that, like uh, like Mick has, has said there, that those findings are still wrapped up in um, red tape and that investigation. As I say, it will be six years in. Um, where are we? Yeah, six six years in about four weeks' time. And we know further forward. I, I reported recently that the um, well, I've I've issued um, freedom of information. Uh, requests against the HSC and Thames Valley Police and we've been told categorically um, that there is no news at the moment, the investigation is ongoing um, and, and just to round that off because we've had, we've had some more um, tech comments there um, 
compare and contrast that with the uh, the American experience. They had a, a boiler house collapse in um, a power station in Ohio. Um, I think that was 2019. 2019 or 2020, but it, it happened over over the Christmas period. Um, two men were killed. Um, they remained trapped for a month, which obviously is seven times less than the uh, the Brits remained trapped. And that entire thing was investigated, prosecuted, and closed in 18 months. Why does it take seven times as long to recover the bodies here in the UK? And why does it take? Um, four times as long to carry out an investigation um, because our priorities are wrong is my answer on that um, uh, how fast is the H- HS2 trend you know I actually don't know um, let's see if I can find that Two hundred and twenty-five miles per hour, apparently, according to the interwebs. Two hundred and twenty-five miles an hour, which uh, you know somebody alluded to that earlier. Our current um, speed, I think, is is maximum one hundred and twenty-five. So we're putting another hundred miles an hour on there. But again, it's I, and I, I think that's where um, some of the some of the information got lost in translation as far as HS two and its bid to build the railway. There was a lot of talk about speed, which is which is fine. But it's capacity. You know, anybody that's ever travelled from London to Manchester or Manchester to London on a train will know, you know, often there, it is standing room only. The, the main purpose of this is is partly to add capacity to railways, but also to encourage people to, to rather than, well, let the, take, let the train take the strain, as the ad used to say. So rather than jumping in their cars, they would jump on uh, a train instead. Do we need to move all the people now? Power stations, um, we need for all the electric cars and plant coming, massive kilowatts. Um, there's a, there, there, there's a, a real underlying thing there. Um, I, I moved into a new build house, um, not this one, the previous one, um, and there were no, when we moved in, there was no. Uh, phone line there was no uh, internet there were the roads weren't adopted so there there is this lag in infrastructure I personally think that tech at least partly helps to overcome that so you know as it stands at the moment the way that the the, the infrastructure and society works is Think, think back to, uh, I'm old enough to remember um, when Milton Keynes genuinely was a new town. So you, you take a, a plot of land and you say, okay, we're, we're going to build this entirely new town or city. And what will it need? Well, it will need schools, it will need shops and churches and pubs and roads and gas and electricity and water and all those kind of things. With the advent of technology, you have the ability to, to start the other way around and say, where would we like people to live? And and if the answer to that is, let's not dig up another bit of the, the green belt, uh, but let's encourage, let's encourage, you know, the, the erection of, you know, whatever it might be, an office block in Dorset. But that Dorset office will actually be manned by people from North Yorkshire. But it will be manned from North Yorkshire, not in the office in Dorset. At which point that then changes the argument, you know, the the... the not not roads, not not rail, because you know these are remote workers, and by and large they'll be working from home. So all of a sudden you take you put you're putting less strain 
on public transport, you're commuting less. We, I, I do think, you know, we, we need to take a, a look at the bigger picture. And and also, we, we touched on this this week, funnily enough. Um, we, we've got, obviously, a, a serious issue in the construction and demolition industry with uh, mental health. We've also got a problem with physical health. I mentioned earlier this week about the fact that I, I've got a friend who is an occupational nurse who works in construction and demolition. So she goes to sites and she checks the health of the guys that are working on site. And she often finds undiagnosed heart disease, undiagnosed diabetes, uh, undiagnosed hearing problems, very poor dental health, and so on. And a lot of that, a lot of that is down to the fact that men are really, really crap at going to the doctor. But an awful lot of it is down to the fact that even if they wanted to go to the doctor, they couldn't because they are working away from home. They're working away from their GP, working away from their dentist, um, and they don't have the time or um, the ability to get to see a doctor. The moment you start to address the problem of travel, and, and again, you know, we, we, here's here's where we have a ludicrous situation, uh, and the, this is just ideas coming off the top of my head. We've got a ludicrous, ludicrous situation now, where we've got a government who is requiring us all to give up um, diesel and give up petrol because it's bad for the environment. We've got local authorities um, actively uh, pursuing exactly the same goals. And yet, government and those local authorities, when they go out to tender for a demolition or a construction job, locality isn't a consideration. They will go to the cheapest bidder. So if, if a Scottish demolition contractor wins a job in London, they've then got to move men and machines and you know site offices and everything else from one end of the country to another just to save a few pounds shillings and pence that make that's a complete lack of joined up thinking and it doesn't need to be the case um we one of the things that, that keeps coming up in my head whenever we talk about mental health is the fact that we are we are all talking about mental health awareness we we've now got demolition and construction companies that have uh, mental health aware uh, mental health uh, first aiders who are trained to spot early signs of uh, mental health issues and that kind of thing and that's that's great that's a, but i i have yet to hear of a single demolition or construction company saying we've looked at this we've sat our guys down um, and we've discussed it and we have realized that actually the way that we're working, uh, long hours, um, uh, either long commutes or um, having to work away from home for prolonged periods of time, um, working against the clock all the time because you've got a, a client or a major, a main contractor breathing down your neck, constant pressure, constant threat that um, you might not get paid because of the, the way that the finances work in construction and demolition, constant threat that if you step out of line, you will be um, sacked and, and potentially uh, bad-mouthed and, and blackballed throughout the industry. Those all address um, mental health. And, and I, as I say, as far as I'm aware, I don't know of a single company that is doing that. What we're doing is we're putting a stick, sticking plaster on it, but we're not actually addressing the underlying wound and the cause of that wound. 
Uh, Ken, if I if I get an opportunity to go to Malaga, I'll 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 be sure to mention the fact that you are the man responsible for carrying my bags. I, I'd I'd love to go out there with you. It really would be a, an absolute hoot. Um, yes, it does. It does. Um, my answer to that is the HSE is not fit for purpose. We need something, uh, no question about it. We do need something. We need something to police um, problems with um, health and safety at work. But it's not what it is at the moment. Um, you know, this this switch to FIFA intervention, cutting back on the number of inspectors, has had a very, very severe and negative impact on the HSE um, to the point where, you know, whenever I speak to any, anybody these days, it's not, it doesn't have the respect that it used to have. I think the HS2 is now basically seen as nothing more than a money-making exercise. The very fact that the HSE, through their FIFA intervention scheme, will charge you to have an inspector on site, and that inspector is on site to look for reasons to prosecute you. And and we apparently we've we've decided to accept that. Um, I had a bit of a rant earlier in the week. I can't remember whether it was yesterday. Or, no, it was the day before yesterday. You know. One one of my greatest frustrations, um, and I'm sure it is age-driven, one of my greatest frustrations is that we Brits have have become compliant. Um, you know, the government changes a rule, and rather than saying, no, no, that, that doesn't fly, that goes against everything that we stand for, um, we just accept it. Um, you know, and, and I, I will say that from from illegal wars to changes in uh, red to white diesel and everything else you know we as an industry we are a million plus strong we should be standing up for ourselves much the same as i say i i don't necessarily agree with their reasoning for doing so uh, but you look at you've got 50,000 canadian truckers heading for ottawa and you as a result you've got a prime minister in hiding don't ever forget the, the power of the people, you know, that ultimately Boris Johnson is employed by us, not by anybody else, by us, you know, and and although we, we only get to pick and choose our politicians once every four years, we get to pick and choose what they do by voting in a different way. You know, we could vote with our feet, we could take to the streets and say, you know, your, your concept of red diesel, poke it. We're not having it. We are not going to take. We're not going to take a hit. At the same time, you, you you forced us to work through a pandemic, even though nobody at that time knew the actual risks. You then lauded us as the um, as the saviors of the British economy, and then just as we get into our stride and start to make inroads into uh, making that recovery, you slap us with an unnecessary um, financial penalty that does not in any way, shape or form address the need for improving the environment. If, if you were that keen to improve the environment, the government would subsidise HVO fuel. It would be putting money into the development of hydrogen fuel, instead of which it's decided that, that some parts of industry, and it is only some parts, will lose the, um, the subsidy on red diesel. 
and, and when you when you actually read the document that goes with that uh, i mean some of it is utterly staggering so there is an exemption being given to um, the agricultural sector now ag the agricultural sector puts food on the nation's table I have no qualms with the farmers getting, maintaining their uh, red diesel status. No qualms whatsoever. But you know who else gets an exemption? Those who organise circuses and funfairs. Now, for one thing, they've the government have made, or HMS, HMRC, part of government, have made an exemption for probably about 200 people. And, and really... <laughs> well, you, you've got one industry sector that employs millions of people that is trying desperately to lead the lead the nation out of the doldrums of COVID, and you're penalising them. And then you've got funfair organisers and circus organisers who probably only work for a few months of the year and provide entertainment for fewer and fewer people with each passing year. They get an exemption. How I would love to have been in the meeting where that happened. Uh, you know, somebody has sat in a meeting and gone. Oh, I I'll tell you who else could go, with, could do with some exemption there. Those that organise circuses. What? Oh, wow. Um, let's have a look. Um, if you build a fast and efficient uh, public transport network, fewer people might feel the need to switch to electric cars. <clears throat> and again. Going back to our joined up thinking, and we've mentioned this on the uh, the breakfast show previously, we've got a situation we, we were all careering down the path to uh, the development of smart motorways, but the smart motorway system has currently stalled. It's, it's held in abeyance at the moment. It's held in abeyance because there are fears that electric cars, when an electric car runs out of power, there's no drifting to the hard shoulder because there is no hard shoulder. An electric car will just stop. And that could potentially cause accidents. I, I I have a three-year-old grandson who knows how batteries work. He knows that one of his toys, when it runs out of power, stops. It, it, it doesn't sort of walk itself back to the toy box, climb in and then die. It stops. A three-year-old knows how electric vehicles and electric goods work if the battery power stops it stops and yet we've got government um, the department of transport highways england or national highways all lauding the the notion of um, smart motorways knowing full well that electric vehicles were coming down the line but they forgot to address that My three-year-old grandson, Ted, is better equipped to plan our roads than the Department of Transport. Um, Neil Crawford, on some day when jobs need, uh, need expensive purchase and run high-rich actuators. Oh, excuse me. With unmanned autonomous operation, no operator risking his or her life. You could do top-down demolition using compact equipment. It's a tower block, every level of construction, then AI could learn it quickly and just repeat cycle after cycle. I, I salute you for your wisdom, Neil. I totally agree. Um, Al has made the point a couple of times, both on this show and on um, the previous Breakfast show. There is a, uh, a, a circular motion 
or a repetitive um, action that machines do very, very well. So um, Al mentioned mines and quarries. So if you've got an, an autonomous dump truck and you basically program it to go there, get loaded, come back, dump. Go there, get loaded, come back, dump. It will do that until you tell it to stop. You think about the way that a top-down demolition works. You basically put a machine on the top and it munches and munches and munches and munches and munches all around the, that building, drops down a floor, repeat. That is programmable right now. Now, it might take a, a fairly bold and forward-thinking client to say, yeah, go on, give it a go, give it a try. Let, what, what's the worst that could happen? But I've already seen the first parts of that. You know, I've, I've been on, on projects now. Um, I was on one a, a year or two ago with H Demolition in London. They were actually subcontracted on an Aerith job. And they had a Bobcat um, skid steer um, equipped with a bucket, but also with a, a breaker as well. So interchangeable. And that machine was remotely controlled. That remote control was completely wireless. So when I was seeing it, or when I saw it, we, we were seeing it with the operator stood 20, 30, 40 meters behind the machine because the machine was working close to the edge. And ultimately, you know, a, a, a machine is replaceable. Yes, it will make a loud bang when it hits the ground, it, should it fall off the top of the building. But, you know, a machine is replaceable. A person is not. But that person that was on the, on the roof with me and with that machine didn't need to be. It was great for the photographs and great for the video, but he didn't need to be there. He could have been anywhere. He could have been on at ground level, watching it all through a, a camera. He could have been in the next, he could have been sat in his own bedroom. And funnily enough, the guy that was driving it is a guy called Steve Ollerton, who lives about a mile down the road from me, but that's a whole different matter. But yet yeah, that is absolutely doable. And and, and what, a, what a giant leap for safety that would be. What a giant leap, you know, we, we, we decide amongst ourselves and, you know, amongst clients and everything else, we are going to do this demolition job with nobody on site. Nobody on site at all. They will, we'll have a crane that lowers the machines onto the roof. We'll get them prepped. And at that point, all of the men and the women take their leave and everything is done remotely. So if anything goes awry, yes, you might dent or damage or possibly even lose a machine. But those people will be safe as houses. Although safe as houses, when you're talking about demolition, is not necessarily <laughs> a great analogy to draw. Um, uh, it's primarily capacity. The West Coast mainline uh, moves a lot of passengers and freight. Container traffic to and from uh, Southampton, Felixstowe, London Gate. Now with HS2, more aggregate traffic from Peak Forest and Mount Sorrel to London. 100%. Um, the plant industry is one of the worst industries for people uh, overweight, myself included, because we sit on our bums in a cab for eight to ten hours a day. Uh, yeah, yeah, you do. Um, and and when you think about that from from a wider lifestyle point of view, now I I was diagnosed as diabetic. Um, five years ago, uh, lifelong chocoholic. I brought it entirely upon myself. Um, but as a result, I, I watch, I, I am forced to watch what I eat. I'm back on a, a blood sugar diet right now. So as everyone that's here right now knows, I've been traveling to and from Worthing quite a bit. Um, for, me to, for me to get to Worthing and back, it's about an hour and 20 minutes here, an hour and 20 minutes back. And on my journey, 
there are a couple of service stations uh, well no actually there's, there's probably four service stations and in those service stations I can buy burgers fattening sandwiches um, and lots of chocolate as somebody that is um, borderline type 2 diabetic diet controlled um, but somebody who has to watch you know, things like sugar and salt it's virtually impossible to the point where um, because I'm on such a strict diet and my, my um, calories are, are whittled down so much the last two times I visited my father um, I've taken a packed lunch <laughs> not that my, my, I mean my father my father has food in the house don't get me wrong but believe me what my father eats and what I eat are chalk and cheese not literally chalk and cheese but, but you know, they are very very different um, and when you think about um, you know if you're lucky enough to be on a site that has a canteen you know we're, we're not talking about um, mung bean salads here are we we're talking about fry ups and bacon rolls and um, cups of tea with four sugars in and stuff like that everything within construction and demolition industry is is conducive to poor health you know the travel to and from it's burgers and it's chocolate when you get to site it's bacon sandwiches you're it, you're not and not only that uh, and i'm guilty of that I, I mean i'm sat in an office but i'm guilty of this as well you know i i used to have what was laughingly called a lunch hour my lunch hour is now about 10 minutes you know as long as it takes me to eat a wrap or whatever it might be and i often do it sat right here but if you're if you're in the demolition and construction industry and you're moving to and fro and you're going from site to site, the chances are even if you are stopping for a bite to eat, you're doing so by the side of the road. And let's face it, as good as the bacon sandwiches are by the side of the road, and trust me, I I I'm fully aware of how good they are. A lifetime of doing that, a career of of doing that, is going to take its toll. And as I say, uh, my friend, the occupational. Uh, health nurse and Nicola Elvie if you're watching Nicola um, the, the number of times that, that you know she will go onto a site and discover you know as I say undiagnosed heart disease undiagnosed diabetes high instances of um, uh, alcohol and drugs in the blood um, and, and when you think about that when you think you know it's easy to point the finger I think at um, people that are um, overindulging in drink or drugs Never got the drug scene myself, um, but I did my fair share of drinking in my time. Um, but if you're if you're working away from home, um, and you know you work eight, nine, ten hours a day, and then you you are basically going back to digs or or whatever it might be, what else do you do? What have you got to do? Go go and have a bite to eat somewhere, which is probably going to be fairly fattening and, and not particularly healthy, or go into the pub. Um, and also, there there is that self medication thing. You know, if you're if you're away from your GP um, and you're not being treated for um, various aspects of ill health, even things like toothache. You know, some some people might decide actually I'm going to self medicate my toothache with, you know, overdoing it on the painkillers. Um, I've got bad back because I'm I'm in and out of a, a machine all day. Uh, you know, constant vibration, and everything else, and I will I will numb that pain with um, recreational drugs or with alcohol of an evening everything about the industry is geared towards that um and, and there is no safety net i'm afraid um neil makes a valid point any tower block i've worked on nothing uh, is uniform no level is exactly the same over the height of the building 
no IT person realised that uh, reprogramming is a common thing on computers. And sorry to say, even we humans get it wrong when we, when we learn, we watch, see if we can improve. That's a human trait. <coughs> uh, Mick, I, I will... I, I, what is that bloody thing called? Bear, bear, bear with me. Um, I'm just looking up a thing. Um, Um, I'm going to throw this up on the screen, um, mainly because I can. Um, let's have a look. That there, I'm going to take you off the, the screen for a second there, Mick. Um, that there is what is known as a Roomba. Um, there you go. That there is a Roomba vacuum robot. Uh, I haven't got one. Um, I'm not that seriously into tech. I haven't got one. But that device will learn your house. It will learn where your skirting boards are, where your sofa is, where your uh, coffee table is, where your uh, dresser is, and, and so on down the line. It will go around your house, and it will vacuum your house. And when it's done, it will return itself to the charging station. And if just for fun you decide i'm going to rearrange my front room and i'm going to put the sofa at the other end and a chair at the other end that Roomba vacuum the following day will turn itself loose of its charging point and it will relearn your house and it will not bump into things or it will it will touch things but not actually physically bump into them touch things and it will go the other way that we have the technology to do that so that you can have your house vacuumed while you're at work, should you so desire, and if you've got money to burn. Um, personally, hoovering, stick the headphones on and, and listen to a podcast or something like that. Um, but that technology exists. To take, uh, and bearing in mind, I don't know how much one of those uh, rumor things is, uh, you know, it's it's hundreds of, oh, it's, it's uh, you can get one of those for 449 quid. Okay, so if you can build that tech into something that costs 449 quid, imagine what tech you could have at your disposal um, if you were to apply that same sort of technology, but on a machine <clears throat> that was worth 50,000 quid, you know, a skid steer or a, a decent sized excavator or 50,000, 100,000. <clears> That technology is there. It, it, it exists. It could be used should we so desire. Uh, David Wiley. I, I, I know what that says, but I can't help thinking that says Toowoomba. Uh, Toowoomba-based Wolf Mining, part of the National Group, use semi-autonomous tractor system known as SATS technology since 2017. Uh, cat command for dozing with a fleet of cat D11Ts. The world's first real-world use in productivity conditions at an open-cut coal mine in central Queensland. One operator drives one dozer remotely and manages three others um, semi-autonomously. People in wheelchairs can now do this job again more comfortable day in a remote sta uh, station. Reduced, I, I'm going to guess that's reduced flying time. Um, I, I take on board everything you say there, um, and 
I've alluded to this previously when I've been talking about technology. Um, Caterpillar obviously is unquestionably at the cutting edge of all of this, um, to the point where um, we've got Caterpillar trucks have now hold or autonomous Caterpillar trucks have now hold more than three billion tons of material um, again in Australia. But the bit there that stands out for me uh, of what David Wiley has said. Um, people in wheelchairs can now do this job again. That, to my mind, is one fantastic use of technology. Um, so imagine you've got um, a, an equipment operator who has been um, disabled out of the industry for one reason or another. And they've been disabled out because, you know, particularly with a, a bigger machine, so be it a dozer or a wheel loader or a high-rate excavator, for example, getting in and out of the cab is very, very prob problematic. There is a solution. Operate the machine without getting in the cab. Operate the machine without having to travel to the site. Work remotely. You know, pull up at, either do it from home or pull up at a, a dedicated workstation, sit there in your wheelchair and operate for your eight hours a day in complete comfort and um, you, you've suddenly made a, a, a major contribution. Bearing in mind, you know, we, we're always talking about the skill shortage and, you know, I think you know, I often decry the fact that we overlook women, but we overlook disabled people. Now, there's large parts of the, the construction and demolition industry in which um, disabled people would really struggle. But that's because we're looking at it from the current standpoint. You know, if we were to decide actually the way we want to progress here is. And think about those, those, and I'm going to use a high reach or a dozer, but I'm going to go with a high reach. Think about that. I, I, I've said this previously. If you spent a quarter of a million, half a million, or more than a million on a high reach excavator, you are not going to throw the keys to a snotty 16-year-old who's come straight out of college and has never operated an excavator in their life. You want somebody on that that is very experienced. So imagine you've got yourself an operator who's got 10, 15, 20 years high-reach operating under his belt. And at some point, he hurts his back or um, he hurts his leg or whatever it might be. And he can now load, no longer get in that cab. Think about how much a company has invested in that guy in terms of training. Think about the amount of experience and knowledge um, that that they would be taking with them if they were just resigned to the dole queue or put on the industry scrap heap. And think about what they could do if we had the technology, which as David Wiley has just said, we most certainly do, if we had the technology to bring that guy back into the workforce, but into a workforce that was designed to work around him rather than him having to struggle to work around it. Um, yeah. Um, a demolition job on Chesington Industrial Estate was done by a Sheffield firm. As for visiting the doctor on hospital, uh, when I needed hospital visits, the company had to get a relief or agency driver in for the day, so I had to take the day off or unpaid or use holiday pay. It wasn't possible to get out from site. Um, and, and they're in... Listen, we, we all know the way that the construction folks work, and, and we also know the fact that, you know, if, if you're driving a digger... Um, you're not, you're not likely to be a multi-millionaire. Um, 
And I, I, I'm going to use the example, you know, particularly if you're a, 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 an owner operator or you're a self-employed uh, self hired gun of an operator. So if you're at work, you're earning money. If you are not at work, you are not earning money. And the, the system that we have right now is that if you want to go and sit to see a doctor or to see a dentist or to visit the hospital, you are required to do so knowing full well that you're going to lose 150, 200, 300 pounds. At the same time as doing that, you've got the constant need to be updating cards. You know, so I, I, I'm... Listen, I'm not an expert because I don't do it for a living, but my guess is when an operator, particularly a self-employed operator, when they get to the end of the year, uh, they, they've probably fed themselves, fed their family, they've paid the mortgage or paid the rent, uh, they put food on the table, but my guess is there ain't a great bundle of spare. Um, and if that spare is required to go on, uh, complete, on updating competence cards, many of which don't actually need updating because... Let's face it, um, asbestos awareness doesn't fall out of your ears. Uh, once you're aware, you're aware. You don't need to keep learning the same thing. Um, so you've got an operator who is he's looking at his, his wage packet, looking at what he's got to pay for in terms of fuel and insurance and and everything else. And, and you know, he gets to the end of the year knowing full well that he's going to have to pay 200, 300, 500 pounds to renew cars and everything else. And he needs to go and see a doctor that he's going to cost him, as I say, 150, 250 pounds. Do you think he's going to go? No. No, what they will do is they will muddle through. Um, they will work through the pain. And as I say, you know, not only are they working through the pain and therefore ultimately potentially making that, whatever that medical issue is making it worse but then you've also got the issue that they might find themselves having to self-medicate with you know eight pints of an evening eight pints of an evening is going to do them enormous damage and you know if somebody is turning up for work in the morning having had eight pints the previous night they're not they're not really ready for work are they um fair play to jcb new for 140x um done a lot of work with vibration in the cab they have um and i know you know other uh, uh, what is it they say on the tv uh, other makes of uh, excavators are available yeah jcb have done some fantastic work caterpillar komatsu volvo et al have all done fantastic work but do you know where there's no vibration at all here where, where i am sat here got a nice comfy swivel chair tips back um, I've got tea readily available just behind me. It's gone, but I've got tea readily available behind me. The temperature is set to my surroundings. The light is set to my surroundings. I have no vibration. I, the only noise is the um, music that's playing in the background. I have no dust to inhale. Um, should I need to go and see the doctor, I will stop my computer and I will do that. All of which comes into play the moment that you say, yeah, okay, let's let's start to look at, at implementing um, technology to the advantage of people, not necessarily to the advantages of commerce, because as my video alluded to, when, when technology is there to do commerce's bidding, men and women, or men and women suffer. If it's used to advance man and woman, it's a different matter. Now, going back to what we were saying about 
you know, reducing vibration. Put them somewhere where there is none. If we're talking about putting disabled people back into work, put them somewhere where they don't need to get into a cab. We're talking about uh, controlling emissions and, uh, and carbon footprint. Put workers where they don't need to travel. Um, as Ken said, 8, 10, 12 hours in the saddle, possibly having a break in the cab. Then we're getting a car or a van another seat for the drive home then there's a good chance we sit in front of the tv eating our dinner i used to watch other operators grazing all day long jaw, jaw doesn't stop moving biscuits sweets uh i weigh myself uh i myself weigh 19 stone no health issues on the front heart diabetes uh neil listen i don't know how tall you are um i'm 5'10 if i stand slightly on tiptoes um the the most i've ever weighed is 14 stone um and I found myself staring down the barrel of type 2 diabetes. Um, now, as I say, I, I, for my sins, I had, I was good friends with many people in pubs for, <laughs> for, for a number of years. Um, and as I say, I'm a lifelong chocoholic. So when I was told by the doctor that I had type 2 diabetes, I, I didn't clutch my chest and oh, the shock, I just went, yeah, kind of saw that coming. Um, but 19 stone, you know, unless you're six foot six, that's that's a lot. And and you've you've said it yourself. You know, no no health issues on that front, heart disease, diabetes. But believe me, you know, and, and as I say, because of the, the, the thing that I've had with diabetes and uh, because of the age I am, I now have to see the dog uh, the doctor on on a fairly regular basis um, for a bit of an MOT. Um, and one of the you know, I've I've got basically like a flow chart of stuff that I need to do. So, you know, reduce my calorie intake, reduce my salt intake, reduce my sugar intake, and, and so on down the line. <clears throat> and the, the way that that is presented on my doctor's computer is, if you imagine, if you do all of the all of the crap that's bad for you, so you drink too much, you smoke too much, you eat too much, you eat all the wrong things, all of that will ultimately give you a score of a hundred which is your percentage likelihood of suffering from heart disease. But if you throw into the mix a bit more healthy eating, that 100 becomes 80. If you throw in a bit of exercise, 80 becomes 65. You throw in, or you throw away sugar and salt and um, saturated fats and that kind of thing, 65 becomes 50. Um, and personally, when I saw that visually, you know, when that when that was represented right there, you know, if if you carry on the way you're going, heart disease is going to get you. And one of the key signs, I, I and I'm I'm a sufferer myself. The one place that, that fat gathers in most men, men of my age certainly, is around your belly. If you've got belly fat, too much belly fat, you're a dead ringer for heart disease. Um, which is why I'm, as I say, back on the diet. And, and listen, I'm not preaching here. I am a yo-yo dieter. Um, I, I overindulged during lockdown. I overindulged at Christmas. But I'm back on the straight and narrow, basically because my wife won't stop swearing at me. Um, there you are. Um, but I, I would, as I say, I would I would counsel caution. Um, it's it's a bit like those people that, that oh, oh, you know, my, my grandmother smoked 40 a day and she lived to 104. She may well have done, but my, my bet is she's in the minority. She's not actually the majority. Um, Glenn, don't believe we've seen you in the chat before. Glenn, good morning. Um, I, we, we have a thing that we do for our newcomers. Um, 
if I can remember where to find it. Uh, if you're new on the chat, you get a burst of confetti. That's just for you, Glyn. Uh, this is true, but Brown and Mason pay for training and updating cards for the lads. Yes, they, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. But they, don't, don't let's forget that <clears throat> in our midst, we have an awful lot of self-employed um, operators and workers. Um, you know, those that work for uh, either directly or through agencies. Um, a lot of this is they foot the bill themselves. And, and it's even other bits and pieces, you know, when you think about PPE. You know, I, I would like to think, I know it's a legal requirement, but I would like to think that most demolition and construction companies, reputable ones, supply their guys with PPE. So boots, hats, IVs, glasses, gloves, and, and all that kind of thing. They certainly do on the bigger jobs, um, maybe less so on some of the smaller jobs or with some of the smaller firms. But if you're working through an agency or if you are self-employed, that's on you. You know, you, you have to fund that yourself. Uh, Ken, I'm, I'd rather not look at your belly, but I'll, you, you love a pizza, mate, don't you? Um, as as do we all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sat here. This, this goes to show how badly I preach this sort of stuff. I'm sat here telling people about, you know, the, the, the hazards of unhealthy eating. And I'm sat here thinking, I've mentioned a bacon sandwich now. I could absolutely murder one. But better still, a pizza. And what is it? It's 11.32. Nobody needs pizza at 11.32 in the morning. <laughs> Maybe travelling work doctors who would visit site. Um, that kind of assistance for long-distance truckers in Germany can have medical checkups in laybys. <clears throat> Again, I mean, I, I think a lot of that is down to um, the individuals. Um, as I say... I, I have a friend who is an occupational nurse and she's worked for, I mean, the, the reason I met her was she was working for uh, the demolition contractor, Erith. So, you know, she goes from uh, Erith site to Erith site, making sure that the guys on site there are as fit and well as is humanly possible. But going back to what I was saying about um, the old lady living to 104, that is not the majority. You know, the, the vast majority of demolition contractors and construction companies do not fund um, an occupational um, health nurse to go from site to site because once again we're back to the evils of commerce an occupational nurse will uh, an occupational nurse health will cost money almost certainly not as much money as um, the people that she is seeing taking sick time but that's looking at the bigger picture, isn't it? And unfortunately, I think when it comes to pounds uh, in the bank, we don't often look at the bigger picture. Um, let's have a look. Uh, that's why I don't have a day off. Um, why don't dentists and doctors open at weekends um, so it can be sorted easy and the doctor can have Monday and Tuesday off? Yes. Yes, they could. And I know you said that tongue-in-cheek, Ken. But if doctors had... If doctors opened on a Saturday or at the weekend to accommodate construction, demolition workers, digger drivers and, and, and what have you, that would be fantastic for the industry. But if they then close their doors on Monday, then me, who doesn't work on site, my father, who is very ill, he doesn't get to go or we don't get to go to the doctors on a Monday. So it's a vicious circle. And, it, and it, it, again, it's a sticking plaster solution. The solution really is not to have people working the way that they do. Don't have them working away from home. Make sure that they're home 
at a reasonable hour. They're not traveling, you're not, they're not computing three hours there and three hours back. If they are required to work for prolonged periods away from home, there should be doctors and nurses on standby to, to, to check them out. But also, you know, much the same as we used to have in the offshore industry. If you're working away from home, you do whatever it might be, three weeks on, three weeks off, or whatever it might be. Um, but again, unfortunately, I think the employers would use that as an opportunity. You're only working three weeks, so we're going to we're going to half half your wages because you know there's three weeks you aren't working. The entire the, the, the fundamentals of the entire industry need a revisit. And technology, as we've proven, I mean the very fact that we're now talking about weight loss and pizzas for breakfast shows how far the conversation has gone. But somebody needs to take a big step back, and I, I have to say, I was hoping that COVID would be the catalyst for that. Um, somebody needs to take a big step back and, and realise that the systems of work that we are employing now do not reflect the the, the current world um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I had a medical with Costa years ago and nearly closed the site down. Uh, legs hips eyes ears head oh it's probably why you're sat here listening to this old nonsense um yeah and and i mean even things like i mean i i heard a, a tale from as i say this uh, occupational nurse she was summoned to do um some health checks but she was also asked um the, the company in question i won't name them but the company in question they weren't working on the rail but they were very close to it there was no need for them whatsoever to abide by um, trackside uh, rules, but the employer decided, actually, given the fact that we are that close, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to adopt some of the, uh, the trackside regulations. So they did the health checks, but they also got their team to um, agree to a drink and drug set tests. And the occupational nurse checked 11 guys, and 11 of them had drugs in the system. I mean, recreational drugs, not not paracetamol or ibuprofen. They had rec- you know, Every single guy on the site had drugs in the system. Um, and I guess, in I guess that then counters my argument of um, you know the power of technology because if you've got people that are going to work with drugs in their system, but they're doing it and having to get past, you know, the site foreman and, and their colleagues, you know, when they're, they're pie-eyed or they're high as a kite. Imagine what they might do if they were working from home. They, they might actually be on drugs while they're at work. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Um, just don't be in that case. They'll put you down. Yeah, I, I listen. I've I've long since thought that. I, I went through um, the meal with I had burst appendix, sepsis twice, um, brick in the face as a result of a demolition accident, and there, there were times when I was thinking, you know, if I were a horse, somebody would have been reach, reaching for the bolt gun many many moons ago and putting me out of my bloody misery. Um, uh, no work today. Um, watching because I can't wash the car because it's raining outside in Wales. I, I would tell you it's uh, bright and sunny here in uh, in leafy suburbia. Uh, not very not very warm, but it is sunny out. Yeah? Um, now uh, it's an hour and thirty eight minutes. Uh, just windy here in Southport. That that will be your poor diet doing that. No, oh, I'm joking. 
joking. Um, I'm sure it is very windy in Southport. Southport's always windy, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> we're nearly at an hour and 40, and I'm sure you've got bigger and better things to do. Um, I need another cup of tea and possibly a pizza if my wife isn't looking. Cold and drab in Luxembourg. I see it uh, in, in my head. Luxembourg is the sun is always shining, it's picturesque, it's a picture postcard, mountains in the background, and, and children gambling pleasantly in the foreground, and, and sheep and goats. And... No? <laughs> Just cold and drab. Okay. Right, guys, listen, I really enjoyed your company today. Um, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate it probably more than I normally do because it has taken my mind off what else is going on in my uh, in my weird little sphere of a life um i'm going to be back here again on monday morning all things being equal um so uh, yes uh, ah see I, I hadn't imagined it um got two donkeys um not entirely sure what to say about that apart from the fact that i'm i'm envious i have this weird thing i i used to i, I used to go fishing with my father when i was a kid we used to go to a place where there were donkeys and I like donkeys a lot, and yet absolutely terrified of horses. And I don't know that, whether that's because donkeys are that bit shorter, and and if push came to shove, I could probably fight a donkey. I know that's not true, but but donkeys, great horses, terrifying. I don't know. I I, I find so much of myself difficult to visit, uh, difficult to understand. Um, hopefully, visit cat in the sun sometime soon. Um, Ken, if if anybody from Caterpillar is watching, um, <laughs> I've, I'm sorry, I've just spotted the uh, the comment of the day. If I could, if anybody from Caterpillar is watching, and they want two largely unhealthy but really nice people to go and have a look around uh, Malaga, you know where to find us. Um, have a good weekend. What's left? Uh, donkeys are generally nice, but I'm biased. Yeah, well, as I say, so am I. And I'm going to leave you. I'm going to hit the end button in a second. But here is the final comment of the day from our friend Neil Crawford, who sums up the modern world in a single sentence. Yeah, it absolutely is. Guys, thanks so much for watching. See you Monday. Have a great weekend, what's left of it. And thanks for being here. All the best. <laughs>